I don't actually talk a lot. Some some Dharma teachers like to uh, always include what's happening. If it's Mother's Day, they do a Mother's Day talk, or if it's Valentine's Day, they do it. I don't I don't usually do that so much, you know. Uh, but I like Thanksgiving. I think that's a good Buddhist holiday. And so, so really, at the last minute, I grab my Thanksgiving talk. So that's what you're going to get tonight. Thanksgiving. Um, And it is, it's a beautiful uh, way to reflect on um, what's important, Thanksgiving. It's got a nice combination of both thanks and giving woven into it. And if you look up the word in the dictionary, it means an act of giving thanks, which is kind of obvious. Second definition is an expression of gratitude. And this is very key in, in Buddhism, Buddhist teaching, Buddhist understanding, because gratitude is considered one of the beautiful states of heart and mind. And you can just reflect for a moment the, the times when you experience feeling grateful it's just a it's a wonderful state of heart and mind. It feels good to be grateful, to appreciate what's given, to give our thanks or appreciation or acknowledgement for what somebody's done or what we've received or as Suzuki Roshi would say, just to be alive is enough. And the definitions in the dictionary is in addition to an expression of gratitude goes on and says an expression of gratitude especially to God. And, you know, we don't do God in Buddhism so much. Um, we, We do gods actually in Buddhist cosmology. There's actually a lot of gods, but they're not Buddhist gods. They're gods from other tradition who interact with the Buddha, things like that. But what it points to is that when we're in touch with gratitude, we're in touch with the divine, or we're in touch with the numinous, or we're in touch with that which is awake within us. That, That to be grateful, we have to be awake enough to see what we've been given. And so the four foundations of mindfulness that we've been going through will uh, increase your gratitude, will increase your gratefulness, because it will continue to increase your capac- one's capacity to see clearly, to see what's here, and to recognize the beauty of life, the goodness of life, the miraculous in life. Now you know Buddhism of course is called the the middle way is what characterizes Buddha's awakening. So of course Buddhism also is very focused on the difficulty in life, the suffering in life, the dukkha in life. But that's not the whole picture. It's not the whole picture. And so beginning to recognize what's here, what's been given, 
is a, is a very important part of practice. Zen Master Dogen said, he said, uh, uh, being born and dying are both giving. Beautiful understanding. Being born and dying are both giving. You know, somehow we've have this life. Right? Each of us here have been given life for a short time, probably a hundred years tops, which I'm calling a short time, a hundred years. And to recognize that, to begin to recognize that, oh, this is not something we own. This is not something we're going to keep forever. This is not something we're in control of. This is a, a kind of mysterious and beautiful gift, which is the gift of human life. As I've said many times here, then Buddhism it's talked about as precious human birth, precious human birth. And if you've ever been at a birth, it's powerful. How many people here have been at a birth? I just want to see. Maybe maybe a third. For those of you who haven't, I hope you can get to one. Really. Because it's wild. Like this being comes in to the world. And you know, we know all the biological, right? We know the sperm and the egg and all that stuff. But, but then there's this person here. And it's, it's mysterious. It's magical. It has a sense of the divine. If you're there. If you're there and you're present. If you're awake. If you're not having a lot of reaction and thinking about this and worrying about this or wondering when it's going to be over. But if you're actually there. The whole thing is just amazing. And I know at least for the mothers I've talked to, it's like, especially the first one, that definitely takes you way beyond <laughs> your understanding of yourself and reality. Because this whole being comes through you. And, and we are those beings, right? Don't, don't, we're not talking about somebody else who was born. We're talking about us. You know, it may have been a while ago for you. You may not remember so well. <laughs> but, it, but it's in there. It's in there because it's us. You know, we arrived on this planet and we're going to leave this planet. And so Suzuki Roshi would say, just to be alive is enough. And when we're present, when we're awake, doesn't mean there's not dukkha, right? Buddhism, as I said, it's very keen on studying dukkha, on paying attention to suffering, difficulty, dis-ease, impermanence, all true. But it also means paying attention to what's good. 
to paying attention to what's beautiful. You could pay attention to the change in the trees right now. Certain trees will, will give off this beautiful display like peacocks, right? They change color. And we see this beauty. And it's, it's just given, right? Or, or some of the trees are already losing their leaves and all of a sudden you see this scaffolding of the skeleton of the tree that's been there that you might not have seen before and you might not have noticed the ruggedness and the, the strength of that skeleton. But it means we have to be present to see these things. There's a beautiful expression of this kind of gratitude in Buddhism from Ryokan, the great Zen monk. He said, the bamboo grove in the front of my hut, every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. Sometimes I think I should change the quote. I should say, the bamboo grove in front of my hut, every day I tell this koan, and I hope you don't tire of it. <laughs> I've used this koan a lot. Or from Ikyu, another Zen monk, he said, this brick house I live in is really the sky and just as priceless. His vision's even deeper in a certain sense. This brick hut that I live in is really the sky and just as priceless. It's in some ways, sometimes, so Buddhism has, mindfulness is a very interesting, has a task involved in it. The task is to become present and see things as they are. See reality as it is. And that means we want to see what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what's suffering and what's freedom. And we want to see objectively, as objectively as possible. And sometimes part of the dukkha is we just get lost in our own ideas, our own beliefs, our memories, our history, our reactivity, all this stuff, all this stuff. And so we need to start to be mindful of that to begin to liberate that, liberate the mind so it can start to see freshly, with fresh eyes. As, um, I don't know who said it, with eyes unclouded by longing. Maybe Rumi, I'm not sure. With eyes unclouded by longing. And it's a beautiful, it's a, it's a beautiful task. It's a, it's a noble, in Buddhism it's considered a noble task to liberate ourselves so we can begin to see directly what's given, what's here. So the, the definitions go on in the dictionary. 
an acknowledgement or celebration of divine goodness, thanksgiving. And then, as in a day set apart, or the ordinary dispensation of his bounties, God's bounties, her bounties. And I love that. That's very Buddhist in the ordinariness of life, not even in the special. And there's a certain level of mindfulness when we're present, when we're awake, to the moment, to the actuality. Not lost in things, not dreaming about things, not, not um, reacting or wanting or trying to make things, but actually in the, in the felt sense, in the living moment, even the breath can feel like a gift. That we can feel grateful just to be alive or just for the, for the delicacy of the breath or the richness of the breath or the um, unfathomable experience of being alive itself in its direct experience. <clears throat> and you all know the how we get Thanksgiving, don't you? Everybody know that? Well, even if you do, I'm, I want to tell you a few things about that. There's, here's some facts about Thanksgiving. So when the pilgrims came over, the immigrants, right? Some of the first immigrants to America came. There were 102 people, passengers, on the Mayflower, 32 of whom were children and uh, young people. And there were no passenger cabins. Okay, You get the picture? There's no cabins. In those days, it was a merchant ship, and they did not have, have any cabins. Maybe there were hammocks, or, or a bunk that was for people to sleep on. And it took 65 days to get here, right? From England to the East Coast of America, 65 days. Anybody ever notice that when they fly 10 hours to Europe, they're complaining? <laughs> like 65 days. Oh, yeah, that impressed me. That's a while. I hope to take a boat to Europe someday. See what that's like. Fifty people died the first year. So, right? 102 people, 50 people died in, somewhere in the first year. From the great sickness and harsh conditions in their first winter. And then... Um, in 1621, the year after they got here, which is the year that uh, Somerset, an Abnaki Indian from Maine, walked into their village shouting, Welcome, Englishmen. And he'd learned some English from previous contact with fishermen and traders. And then through him, the pilgrims met uh, Sequanto, who taught them how to use fish as fertilizer when planting corn, pumpkins and beans, and established relations with the local tribe um, who had organized government and religion and were farmers, fishermen, hunters, gatherers, so that the tribe had ample and varied food that, of course, they shared with the pilgrims. So they were given, they were being given to 
so that they could survive these first immigrants or pilgrims they're called. And then the, the, the feast of thanksgiving lasted three days. So they got down for a while. They partied for a while. And the um, Native Americans shared venison, duck, turkey, clams, shellfish, corn pudding, pumpkin, dried berries, and other local edibles. So the generosity, the kindness, the care, the friendliness that comes to us at different times, different places, from different people, unexpected at times. If you've ever traveled anywhere, it's always one of the great blessings, which is really how kind people are. People often go out of their way to help somebody who's traveling because we all know what it's like to be vulnerable in that way and how wonderful it is when somebody helps even if it's simply with directions. There were nine, it said nine, the no, nine was the number of women and teenage girls who prepared the three-day Thanksgiving feast for 140 hungry people. So, you know, it was not exactly a PC cooking group, but... And here's the most interesting uh, statistic in this uh, list. 35 million, 35 million, the number of Americans today who are direct descendants from the first Mayflower pilgrims. Isn't that amazing? Right? 35 million people who in some sense owe their lives to these people who spent 65 days crossing the great ocean and then surviving the winter. And if you take a moment for yourself to consider your own lineage, your own heritage, how your people got here and how they may have struggled or suffered, whether they came from Asia or whether they came from Europe, and of course, people who came from Africa who didn't even want to come here and survived. Who came here against their will. If they came from Mexico or South America, Latin America, wherever in the world. Because of course we have the whole world here sitting in the room. And we have the gratitude towards those people. If, if our eyes are open, if we're present, if we can see the whole stream of human lineage that sits here with us. So part of our task is not simply to recognize the dukkha or suffering in life, but to recognize the mystery and the magic and the miraculous and the sacred in human life. And I, I should say this at the end, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it now too. So your homework this week will be to do just that. 
your homework is to actually open your eyes to what's good. And it doesn't mean to, that you, one denies what's difficult or if you're going through a hard time, but it also means pay attention. Pay attention to where is their blessings, where is their goodness, where is their beauty, because it's here, even when things are difficult, even when things are hard, even when things aren't going the way we want them to go. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh. He said, when we have a toothache, we know that not having a toothache is a pleasurable feeling. <laughs> but when we do not have a toothache, most of us be, are unaware of this pleasant feeling. Only when we become blind will we be aware that having eyes to see the blue sky and white clouds is miraculous. When we can see, we are rarely aware of the miracle of seeing. When we hear, we're, we're not aware of the miracle of hearing. Practicing meditation is to be aware of both what is painful and what is miraculous. And then the impact, part of the impact of seeing what's beautiful or what's miraculous is that gratitude arises quite naturally. That when we see what's been given to us, and especially, I mean, we live in a, such a wealthy country, we live in such an amazing age, amazing time. I mean, the whole, the whole internet thing, I mean, that, I, I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's amazing. I mean, really, the whole, the whole uh, uh, connectivity. Uh, I'll tell you how I think about it. The whole, the whole phenomenon of connectivity and the web and internet. And do we have a Twitter account yet? Can I do a one, a forty-six character meditation teaching? Or it's coming. Don't worry. You can just. But the, the, the whole sense of connectivity is kind of a, uh, uh, a grosser manifestation of a spiritual truth of our connectivity, of how absolutely connected we are or how absolutely unseparate we are. The, even the idea we're separate is a misunderstanding, a misperception of reality. And so mindfulness at a certain point starts to reveal the absolute interconnectedness of all things. That there is no separate thing. It's, you know, there's separate bodies on a certain level. But are there separate atoms? I mean, is that possible? Or are there just atoms everywhere? Or molecules? What level do we have to go to to see the interconnectivity, the absolute unity of things? Really, and the internet is a kind of certain kind of more gross manifestation of that truth, and it, and it's a natural thing that that humans would would evolve in that way. It's part of evolution to to bring that forward. I was I was listening to an evolutionary. I don't know if he would be called biologist, but basically he was saying that our evolution 
um, up until this point has been um, kind of rooted or grounded in biology and now it's going beyond biology. I just thought that was a fascinating idea. He thinks Google is the most the most uh, uh, important um, uh, evolutionary factor happening at this time. Anyhow, it's a little aside. So Thanksgiving. So in in Buddhism, um, the word for giving is dana. Dana. Which often we translate as donation or or giving or to give. And the Buddha, when he talked about giving, he said it was the ground, it was the foundation of the path. Or or what he would do is when people first came to see him and they they didn't know what he was about, because you have to remember in the time of the Buddha there were a lot of wandering holy men in the forests and marketplaces of India. And people would come and check them out and saying, who are you? What do you teach? And could, or could I have a teaching? And they would get teachings depending on who it was. And so if somebody would come to the Buddha and ask for a teaching, he would begin by talking about generosity and giving. Dana can be translated as giving or generosity. And that this quality of heart is one is a foundational attitude towards ourselves and towards others that we're generous with ourselves we're generous with others we're giving towards ourselves we're giving to others and so thanksgiving is a beautiful time to reflect to contemplate to consider what have we been given and and what are we giving because the, the contemplation from a Buddhist perspective is for both. The Buddha thought it was really important not only to contemplate what we've been given, but also what have, what have we given. And to delight in our giving, to enjoy our generosity, to appreciate it. And all of it is the beginning of creating a certain... Um, a certain ground of uh, self-kindness, of loving-kindness that becomes the basis for practice, for mindfulness, for concentration, for awakening. That there's a generosity of how we treat ourselves, how we relate to ourselves without harshness, without judgment, without (coughs) meanness. And then, of course, that begins to spread. That heart of loving-kindness spreads not only to ourselves, but to our friends or our neighbors or our co-workers or, our, or people we don't know, to the whole world. So uh, I have a question for you. What are you grateful for? Is anybody grateful?
<laughs> Go ahead, stand up, please. Say your name. My name is Chris. Hey, Chris. I'm grateful for my granddaughter. Two years old. Uh, how old? Two years old. Two years old. Cool. Oh yeah, nice, huh? How are the Canadians doing this year? Yeah. He had a Montreal Canadian jersey. I, I grew up in Detroit. I was like a Red Wings kid, big time. So, yeah. I, I was I was grateful for Gordy Howe. Not everybody's going to understand that, but it's okay. Okay. Who else? Go ahead, Lloyd. Stand up, please. I'm Lloyd. I'm very grateful for my loving wife and my beautiful daughters. See, this is a man of wisdom. Okay, thank you. So we're grateful for our children, our partners, our grandchildren. And that's, of course, best case scenario that when we're grateful for our family, really. Back in the back, stand up, please. <coughs> Grateful for existence. Thank. Pardon. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. What else? Please, if you could stand. Shante. So you've had a very fierce teacher, yeah. right? You, did you say three times you came yeah. close to losing your life? Yeah. Right. So yeah, that's a very fierce teacher. And with that kind of teaching, it, it becomes very clear, like every moment, every moment, every person. Yeah, great. Thank you. That's beautiful. And I'm glad you're here. In the back. I can't see you. Stand up, please. Hi. Hi, Lori. can be grateful for specific people, what they've given, both maybe to us or a community. Yeah. Grateful for the uh, accessibility of the teachers and the teachings in the Bay Area, which is phenomenal. Yeah, grateful for the accessibility of teachers and teachings in the Bay Area. People have sometimes have no idea how rich it is here. I mean, we have such a wealth of Dharma and all kinds of teachings in the Bay Area. You know, I've been teaching in L.A. some. <laughs> it's really rich up here. <laughs> and I like L.A., I have to say, but it's different. Or, you know, I'm from Detroit. Like, it's different in different places. And we take... 
that's the other thing about mindfulness that's so helpful. You can do you can do the quick path like Chantrill? Shante said you could do that quick path, but it's not an easy path, right? You know, of near death. Or you can actually practice mindfulness. And what mindfulness will do is you one of the things that happens as we learn to pay attention in this way is we learn not to take anything for granted. Because we're paying attention to the breath, the body, the sounds, the sensations, the smells, the tastes, the touch, the feelings, the thoughts, the whole show. The whole show. We see. And so, and of course, that's just the internal. I'm doing internal mindfulness and then external mindfulness. And then everything that's happening in all places at all time. And then there's a kind of not taking it for granted, not imposing the past on the present, not taking it for granted in that way, taking for granted we know things. Of course we know things, but that knowing is secondary to the immediacy of this person right now, this moment right now, this experience right now, reality right now. Because everything else, even what we know, it's not true. It has a relative truth, but it, it's not the truth of the lived, immediate, present moment. And so, even our knowing can veil, can veil, can obscure reality. What else? Great. Sanity, heart, and dog. All good. Right. None of it. We don't have any of it all the time. <laughs> That's for sure. Go ahead. Please stand up. It's always what? Heart lifting. Heart lifting, yeah. Suddenly, it's like I can smell something very beautiful. From the fragrance of the flower, yeah. I'm peace and I'm grateful for having a job and also enjoying my job. Also grateful for the triple gem of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and Sangha. Right, great. So grateful for work, enjoying work. Please. If you could stand and say your name. Hi, I'm Susan. Hi. I'm um, my first time here. Welcome. I'm um, so grateful for unemployment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the condition of it. Um, it got my attention. Yeah. And I'm very grateful for Buddhism. Mm, great. Thank you. So, that, so you're also pointing at something. That, that's really good to have in the conversation tonight, which is sometimes we think we're only going to be grateful for the good things, mm-hmm. right? The beautiful things. And, you know, I've, I've been pointing in that direction. But actually, from a place of wisdom, at a certain point, we can be grateful for difficult things, for the hard things, for the things that mature us, or the things that wake us up, as you're pointing to. And that's that's another level of of gratitude and of of thanks 
This is from one of my friends, Deborah Chamberlain Taylor. She said, I notice how generosity and goodness moves in cycles. If someone is kind, I feel gratitude and the impulse towards giving. If someone is selfish, I feel myself more guarded, withheld, and protective. The cycle of generosity fuels more generosity. The cycle of selfishness fuels more selfishness. So part of Thanksgiving, part of our contemplation of Thanksgiving, is to also see, well, where, where do we give? How do we give? So there's what are we grateful for, but also are we able to recognize our gifts? Not just what we've given, but what we give to other people, to our families, to our job, to our communities. Where do you give of your time or your heart or your love or your intelligence or your, your compassion or your creativity to start to actually, this is part of the contemplation on giving. Again, this is beginning to see more clearly who and what we are and how we give, the different forms of how we might give because it's not going to be the same for everybody. Some people will give financially and some people will give, give in terms of creativity or just your presence with somebody sometimes, that gift of actually just being there is a great gift. And to recognize the gift. I know when I was free, when I was doing hospice work, that was one of the great gifts was actually seeing I didn't have to do anything. That the key to hospice work was being there. I mean, people were dying. And that was not going to change. In fact, at that point, when they're in hospice, dying is not a problem. Like that's the goal at that point. It's a little funny, but it's like, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, we're all going to die anyways. That's, you know, not a problem either. But, but actually, when somebody's in hospice, there's no problem if they die. What's needed is, is to respond to the moments before the death appropriately. So sometimes what's needed is you know, some water or maybe a little bit of food or maybe changing a diaper or a bedpan or a sheet or cleaning somebody. Or maybe what's needed is just sitting there with them. She, one of the first people I was, I was with who was dying was a young man during the early years in the AIDS epidemic and I came in and he was his he was totally out of it. He was doing this with his hands. I, I know it's hard to see. He was banging his hands against his chest because of some kind of reaction to the medications in. And so, you know, all I was doing was holding his hands. Right? That's all that was needed. So we give in many ways. Can we begin to recognize how we give, where we give? If you have children and the children are at school and you help with the school, 
I mean, if you have children at all, you're, you're actually giving all the time. Can you recognize your giving? If you have aging parents, or aunts, uncles, grandparents you're taking care of, can you recognize the gift and the goodness of the gift? It's a bigger stretch to recognize that taking care of ourselves well is a gift. <clears throat> and that the cycles of generosity and giving are really what the world needs. The world needs our gifts. The schools need our gifts. The whole political arena needs our gifts, our creativity, our intelligence to deal with really difficulties, human difficulty, complexity, hard problems. And of course the world needs our beauty, our creativity, dance, music, theater, painting, artwork, every kind. And the Dharma, the Dharma is considered one of the great gifts that we can offer. <clears throat> And by dharma, I mean just our presence, our wakefulness, our kindness, and our generosity itself. This is from Mahasi Sayadaw, a Burmese teacher in whose lineage we practice. Mahasi Sayadaw, just so you know, this is part of his gift to us, is the meditation <coughs> technique that is mostly driven from him. Uh, I think Mahasi died in the late 70s um, and was considered one of the great arhats, enlightened beings in Burma. And um, he was one of the people who, who started really teaching lay practitioners intensively. He was a monk who, who, who devised the 10-day retreat. He was one of the people who invented it, right? It doesn't go back 2,500 years, the 10-day retreat. You know, people, people, we think that. We think, oh, we go on a retreat at Spirit Rock, oh, this has been happening. Toward. No, this lay people didn't do a lot of practice. Mahasi started bringing people in and teaching them for 10 days at a time, along with the monks and nuns. He said, acts of generosity inspired by loving kindness live long in human memory generating love and respect among humankind, thus laying foundations for the unity of the whole world. So this holiday of Thanksgiving is an important holiday for all of us. It's, a, it's not just a holiday in Buddhism, it's a practice Thanksgiving. The giving is a practice, the gratitude is a practice to both enact, to contemplate, to reflect on, and to enjoy, to enjoy. This is the kind of pleasure the Buddha talked about as leading to freedom. 
the, the giving and generosity, the gratitude and happiness that comes. I'll end with a poem from Hakuin, one of my favorite Buddhist poems. He says, all beings by nature are Buddha. All beings by nature are Buddha. As ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there is no ice. How sad people ignore the near and search for truth afar. Those who hear this truth even once and listen with a grateful heart, treasuring it, revering it, gain blessings without end. Much more those who turn about and bear witness to self-nature, self-nature that is no nature, go far beyond mere doctrine. How boundless and free is the sky of awareness. How bright the full moon of wisdom. Truly, is anything missing right now? Truly, is anything missing right now, right in this moment? Nirvana is right here before our eyes. This very place, the lotus land, this very body, Buddha. Let's sit for a moment before we end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.